Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. I would like to start this evening with some thank yous. First and foremost to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for hosting this event, to Arts and Humanities and Dean Robert Young, and of course to Literature and Creative Writing um, for coordinating these efforts. Um, also to Maddie Silverstein for his support of the Common, uh, uh, and that support goes back some ways. Um, my name is Marion Wren. I'm the director of the writing program here at NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, and I also, in my spare time, edit a literary magazine out of the United States called The Painted Bride Quarterly. And The Painted Bride Quarterly is uh, some years old. It was founded in 1973. It lives at Drexel University. It publishes poetry and fiction, and sometimes publishes translations. Um, and it's that fact that we only sometimes publish translations that uh, has me in, in a position of deep gratitude um, and general genuflection at the common um, and the writers and editors who will be in conversation tonight. Um, we are here to celebrate Tajdeed, the special issue of the United States literary magazine called The Common dedicated to new Arabic fiction and translation. In the past three years, fewer than 0.5% of English translation came from the Arab world. The Common sought to expand the reach of this region's work, bringing previously inaccessible literature of thematic, stylistic, and political importance to a new audience. There are so few avenues of discovery for Arabic voices, says Jen Acker, who you'll meet in a moment. This volume can make a real difference in raising awareness of the exciting and varied stories being written right now across the Middle East. Co-edited by Acker and prominent Jordanian author Hisham Bustani, Tajdeed features the work of 31 contributors from 15 Middle Eastern countries, Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Morocco, Oman, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Tunisia, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. Translated for contemporary English-speaking audiences, the issue presents a diverse group of emerging and established literary stars. According to their website, by the way, it's worth a visit. Um, according to their website, this special issue seeks to promote greater cross-cultural understanding by providing English-speaking audiences with unprecedented access to a collection of strikingly original and compelling writers and artists rarely heard. Tonight, we are joined by the journal's editor-in-chief, Jennifer Acker, and Jordanian writer Hisham Bustani, as well as award-winning Egyptian writer Youssef Raha, who contributed an introduction to the volume. This promises to be a rich conversation about the 25 stories representing 15 countries across the Middle East, as well as the topics of translation from Arabic to English, not to mention international artistic collaboration. It's a fantastic issue, and it will be available for you um, outside on a table after our conversation. 
But before we start that conversation, I'd like to make some formal introductions of the panelists. Then we'll have a Q&A together after they've done a reading for you. So a little introduction, some readings, some Q&A, and then we'll open up to conversation with you and the audience. First, Jennifer Acker, Editor-in-Chief of The Common. Jennifer has an MFA in fiction and literature from the Bennington Writing Seminars. She's a visiting lecturer at Amherst College. And in 2012 to 2013, she was a faculty fellow at New York University, Abu Dhabi. And that experience, I suspect, had a lot to do with the production of this issue. Hisham Bustani writes fiction and has three published collections of short stories, of love and death, the monotonous chaos of existence, and the perception of meaning. The German review Inamo has chosen him as one of the Arab world's emerging and influential new writers, translating one of his stories into German for its special issue on new Arab literature. Acclaimed for his contemporary themes, style, and language, he experiments with the boundaries of narration and poetry. He was featured in the uh, 2012 issue of Poets and Writers, and if you do a little quick Google search, you can see um, some of his commentary there. Yosef Racha is an Egyptian writer, essayist, and, and groundbreaking prize-winning novelist. Racha is best known for his first novel, The Book of the Sultan's Seal, Strange Incidents from History in the City of Mars. And since 2011, Racha has completed two other novels in a proposed trilogy on the January Revolution. One of the books is called The Crocodiles, another is Paolo, and the latter was longlisted for the Arabic bookseller, or I'm sorry, the Arabic booker in 2017. He's also started writing his first English novel. He's also a photographer and the editor of a bilingual literature and photography site named after his first novel, The Sultan's Seal, Cairo's Coolest Cosmopolitan Hotel, also worth a visit if you're Googling around. Prior to writing the book of the Sultan's Seal, he contributed to the coverage of Arab culture in English for many years as a reporter, literary critic, and cultural editor. First, I believe we will hear from, yeah. is it Yusuf? No? no? OK, Hisham. Yeah. Hisham will read for us first, and then we'll turn it over to Yusuf. All right. All right. Thank you. So thank you for having us. Well, just to give you a taste of the issue, I will just read two paragraphs from my story, which is published in the issue. and. Um, I think we'll hear part of the introduction by Yusuf uh, after that as well, and then uh, the Q&A. Mm -hmm. So the story is entitled A Few Moments After Midnight. I will only read two paragraphs from, or two exits from that, two uh, parts from that story. An extinguished cigarette is suspended between my fingers. I don't know how or who put it there, but I feel worms moving inside it. When I look at them, I imagine I've seen them before, tens of small bodies identical without any features. The cigarette is a large worm ingesting and regurgitating the smaller worms inside it. They slither into my mouth, filling my lungs, and after a short, loud party there, they begin to flow with my blood. I don't know why I felt compelled to jump from the third floor window. I don't know why where that tree shot out from on my way down. And I don't know what made our neighbor go outside to hang her laundry at the moment that I fell. 
I don't know why I imagined that I died when I collided with the ground. I was happy at that moment of collision. I closed my eyes tight and slipped into something like a delicious nap. It took only a few moments until I heard one neighbor scream and realized something was wrong. I hadn't really died. I could still hear the honking of cars driving by. When I stood up and dusted off my clothes, the crowd surrounding me started to back away. Maybe I scared them. I heard one of them tell another with fear in his voice, there are worms coming out of his nose. They are not coming out, I corrected. They are spilling. I left them and walked up to my apartment. I get up and walk around my studio. I see my unfinished paintings completed. Their faces are talking to me. I watch my empty canvases adorn themselves in color and strut around. On the couch, I find Monica Bellucci. I sit next to her, stroke her hair, touch her breasts, and have rough sex with her. There is noise outside. I go out, heading to the building opposite mine. On the roof, some teenagers who just finished their exams are having a party. Then the retired army officer living nearby disconnects the fuse box and they drunkenly creep down the stairs one by one. The protest of irritated neighbors has dispersed and I go back to the apartment elated at the sound of music gone silent. My canvases are colorless again. As for Monica Bellucci, she is a picture on the cover of a magazine lying on the table. There is someone else sitting on the couch instead of her. Insomnia. Oh. Hi. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read the, the first page of the introduction. Um, which is uh, quite general, I think. I mean, not just about the stories in, in, in the issue. Um, <clears throat> sorry. On his last visit to Cairo, the German translator Hartmut Fendrich was despondent about the lack of interest in contemporary Arabic writing. And he offered this interesting explanation of Western reluctance to engage with Arabic literature. I think readers fear that it will destroy the thousand and one nights image they have in their minds. Mm -hmm. One might argue about the number of potential German book buyers who have the timeless classic lodged in their minds, but even those who do, not, who do need not worry. No one writing today could possibly live up to the lack of sophistication, unadorned sensuality, and aimless fantasizing found in the thousand and one nights. <laughs> Another possible reason for Western lack of interest in Arabic literature is the perception that as, culturally, as a culturally foreign backwater, economically and intellectually inferior, the Arab world can solicit only a political or anthropological interest, not a purely literary one. Books that do not pander to this preconception by presenting an exoticized or oversimplified pro-democracy perspective on Arab life are therefore ignored. Of course, we can assert that the 
that that contemporary... Oh, oh, I think there's a typo there. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we can assert that... Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Is that better? Yeah. Yep, okay. Of course, we can assert that contemporary Arabs are not really all that different from their Western counterparts. We can also decry the treatment of literature as a research aid. But the truth is that for many in the West, fiction has functioned as an enjoyable way into the political and social complexities behind all that disturbing news from the Middle East. The idea that a 1,500-year-old continuous tradition of writing might be interesting in itself for its literary merit rather than for what it can teach us evidently does not add up to sales figures high enough to justify expanding the offerings. But in The Dung Beetle, a short story by the Iraqi writer Hassan Belesim, who contributes The Abandoned Village to this volume, there's an alternative cue to affirming the relevance of Arabic literature, or else denying it, without reference to either Orientalist entertainment or geopolitical source material. This is the idea that this literature is at bottom a struggle to remain lucid in the face of encroaching insanity. I cannot write a story, says the travel-weary refugee hero of the dung beetle in his rambling soliloquy, but I'm ready to take up the literary, the literary issue to one end, for the dignity of those on the brink of madness. Thank you. Thank you both so much for that. Um, and I, I want to reiterate the, the landmark quality of this special issue of The Common. Um, it's not translating Arab classics, right? It's translating contemporary fiction in a literary magazine. And right there, two, two, out of the gate, two things. Not everybody's familiar with literary magazines. And certainly, people in, in America might not be familiar with um, contemporary Arab fiction. So I want to open with that maybe a two-pronged question. One, you call the issue, um, I'm going to say it wrong, tajdeed? Tajdeed. Tajdeed, right? So why that choice? Why call it tajdeed? And second to that is, can you tell us the story of the creation of this issue? Like, how did you all get the idea for this? Um, what were some of the iterations of it? And, and now that it's almost a year behind you, what do you see now? So that's a, that's a multi-part question. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> you want to speak to the title? Go for it. Go for it first. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with the story of how the, the issue uh, came about, which is directly related to NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, so I wanted, it's wonderful to be back here, and I want to thank everyone for coming. And... Um, Again, thank the people Marion mentioned and Phil Kennedy at the at the institute. And um, it's uh, really wonderful to be back because this issue started here um, in 2012, 2013. Um, I had the opportunity to be here for a year um, with uh, with my husband, and we got to be a part of this community, this remarkable community, um, and. The Common um, was maybe two years old at that point. Mm. Um, and so the, the Common is a literary magazine published in the States. It's published in print and, and online. And the f mission of the magazine was to publish literature with a strong sense of place. 
so I was very interested in publishing works in which you could sort of feel the place that they were written about and in which the place mattered um, to some aspect of the story or the poem or the essay. So then when uh, we were uh, coming here to, to Abu Dhabi, I thought it would be great to have um, this some sort of cross-section of contemporary uh, contemporary Arabic writing in the comics, literary magazines are of the moment, right? They, um, they are usually edited within, um, you know, you accept something and then not more than a year later uh, it will come out. And so it's. And that's of the moment. <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs> that's pretty clear. Well, we publish online, it can be faster than that. Yeah. But I mean, it's, um, it's not. It's, it's not taking classics or it's not um, book length projects, but it is um, relatively timely. We're still talking print here, right, right. <laughs> uh, which, which takes time. Um, but um, so I had this idea um, to try to use this opportunity of my being here to publish this, this kind of literature, but I didn't really know where to start. Um, I don't read Arabic. I wasn't familiar with the region. So that was obviously a very large stumbling block. Um, and so then things happen sort of uh, stepwise. I was going on a trip to Jordan, and I would just in doing some research before the trip, um, I came across some um, contemporary cultural happenings and things being published in Jordan, and I read a story of Hisham's, which was online at another literary magazine. So I wrote a, a blog post sort of summarizing some of the things um, that I saw um, happening in Jordan. Hisham saw that post um, and then uh, contacted me and submitted a story uh, for, uh, for submission a couple of months later. I accepted the story, we worked together on the editing process, and uh, then, again, I think um, some, some time later, he read an interview in which um, I had mentioned this ambition to uh, do something with the common that was, would be a special issue devoted to contemporary Arabic writing. So he followed up and contacted me again, and we sort of hatched this plan um, to work together um, to source the writing and to find the translators and edit them and publish them for an American audience. Have anything you want to add? <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Just what, go, yeah. Go, well, just go. the one thing is that this sure. um, it took us three years to do this work, um, and we've now been you know, working together for four years. And this morning was the first time that we met. Yeah. Well, I will go and talk a bit about why Tajdeed and the, the title and what is, in my opinion, uh, new Arabic fiction. But also I want to add that before I knew Jennifer, I had this conception about an, Arab, an, an anthology in Arabic mm -hmm. containing new Arab writing. And the good thing, but the tragic thing is that the, the Arabic anthology never made it to print at all hmm. until this day. But the English version of it obviously uh, got uh, you know got through you know and it's now materialized in the comments. So that tells you you know the tragic story of maybe uh, how we deal with things in, in the Arab world and how sometimes translation is an opening 
for things that cannot be realized mm. in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, new Arabic writing, I put always quotation marks around <laughs> new because it's not really new. I don't think there is anything new about art or science. I think all writers, artists, and scientists would always stand on the shoulders of those who came before. Uh, but uh, I sensed that uh, there's a new sensibility or a new sensitivity in Arab writing that is not surfacing. Uh, uh, something that goes beyond the uh, realism or romanticism that, uh, let's say, stamp contemporary Arabic uh, literature uh, as it's understood in its uh, classical contemporary format. So there are new conceptions towards style, new conceptions toward theme. Uh, I usually mention people like uh, Zakaria Tamer, like Muhammad Zafzaf, like uh, Haidar Haidar, uh, like uh, even Muhammad Mahzanji uh, from Egypt uh, during the 80s. So actually these names are not new. They are not a new generation of writer, but writers, but they comprise a new sensitivity towards writing and new techniques in approaching writing, introducing uh, what I call uh, a sort of engagement with the reader where uh, contexts are not fully drawn, but rather uh, left uh, to uh, be interpreted in different ways by uh, a reader. So I think this pattern of writing is more artistic. It's Mm non-commercial. The market is not interested usually in uh, uh, you know in promoting uh, such works they don't they are not best sellers and so on and so forth so usually they are lost uh, in the literary world if you want and uh, and since i work within that context of you know uh, on how to write so i kind of uh, thought that it's about time that some sort of recognition uh, should be, you know, uh, presented to this kind of writing. And also, this mm-hmm. kind of writing defies the stereotypes that Yusuf uh, talked about in his, in, in his introduction, and uh, maybe he mentioned it a little bit in his reading, uh, where, you know, the, the Arab world is represented by either Orientalist uh, fetishism, the camel, the Bedouin, say, you know, sand, uh, the oasis, the harem, and these kind of, or it's represented by this, uh, you know, violent, uh, misogynist, you know, uh, terrorist uh, approach. Uh, whereas the, this kind of writing defies all these, you know, the, or dismantles all these stereotypes and actually portray the complexities and the different levels and layers. Uh, of understanding that you know, con- you know uh, uh, that comprise this whole body of literature mm-hmm. that is not out there and not represented. Yeah. So is that how Tajdeed works? Then it's sort of um, like uh, like what like rectifying that problem that these these voices aren't out there or pushing against the sort of stereotypes that that readers might have of, of Arabic fiction. Um, that this gathering of voices is is a way to sort of like just push against some of those expectations, or at least you know enter into 
uh, a wider audience or wider readership? Is that the, the way you're Let's just say it's a, it's a way that uh, both me and Jennifer are saying that there's many things out there yeah. uh, outside the stereotype, outside yeah. the, you know, the superficial representations and conceptions about the Arab world and about Arab writing. I think what Yusuf uh, in his essay said about being, there's a, literature being not, you know, in the West or in Europe and the US, Arab literature is not actually considered literature, but it's considered as either a, a way to fetishize about the region or uh, to sociologically or anthropologically, you know, look at the region. Uh, this issue defies all, uh, you know, uh, challenges all of this and yeah. presents literature as it is, uh, not as it is expected to be. So can I, can I push that just a little bit further and invite Yusuf into this too? Sure. Like, can, you, can you name some of the stylistic features of this sort of new non-fiction, right? The new sort of creative writing, even though I, I take your point, like what's new here, right? Yeah. Like let's slap air quotes on new. Mm -hmm. But are there any features of, of the writing that's being done by this group of writers at this particular time that you can see or name did you see it while you were editing it, or perhaps even in retrospect, now that you look back um, at the issue? What, what is it that you see now? Yusuf, yeah. For me? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think, I think there's a great deal of, of diversity, yeah. uh, which, is, which would be one of the features. Of, but, but just to, to comment on what Hashem was saying, <clears throat> I mean, it's not so much that there are set expectations for Arabic literature in the West, I think. But I think that the legacy and the situation <laughs> makes it so that why, why on earth would you want to read an Arab writer you know, in, in America or, or, or in Europe or wherever? I mean, I think that attitude is, is, is rather more prevalent than, than you, your attitude or, or Jen's attitude, you know? Right. And, um, and I mean, we can, we can critique that, of course, at, at various levels, but I, but I think what's, what's interesting to me is that you know, contemporary Arabs, uh, including contemporary Arab writers, are, are normal, ordinary human beings yeah. you know, right. <laughs> who can have sort of normally normal human exchanges, right? right? Um, and, and why that isn't seen as a possibility or why that's, why that's regarded as something that's so far-fetched yeah. is, 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 is the issue. So I don't think... I mean, I, I appreciate what, what, what Hashem was saying, of course, but I don't think it's so much an issue of, of actual literature as it is an issue of perception of, of place and, and identity mm. and, and why we should be interested in a certain part of the world. Uh, I think the books that have been successful, the Arabic books that have been successful in the West, in, in, in Western languages, are generally more interesting as, as source material, as, as political commentary or, mm -hmm. or um, sort of journalism, uh, native journalism, if you like, than they are as literature or fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very symptomatic, that, that people aren't really particularly being read for uh, what they're doing in terms of, in terms of fiction or, or poetry or whatever, but, but they're being read because they provide information. There was this <clears throat> major um, article in the New Yorker. I can't remember its name now. 
Um, but it was very, it was extremely kind of um, exemplary of this, of this um, I mean, it, it really demonstrated this attitude about Arabic literature. And I think it, it, had, it had a sentence that went something like, uh, but, but responsible Americans for whom the news is not enough may benefit from, <laughs> you know, such <laughs> translations like because yeah. then they'd have an in uh, uh, into, these, uh, into these societies and they'd, they'd work out how things really work, you know, yeah. to supplement the news. And, of course, they have to be responsible Americans to be interested, mm-hmm. which, which seemed very strange to me and quite offensive in its way, obviously, but, but very strange in the sense that why, why aren't these people regarded as, 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 as peers, you know, as, as normal People who could be doing interesting things or, or could be doing irrelevant things. I mean, I don't think that all Arabic writing has to be relevant in the West. You know, I mean, some things are very... Like my, my, the novel that I'm best known for, for example, <laughs> is I don't think works so well in English as it does in, in the original, you know, because it draws on... It, it plays with language and it draws on all kinds of legacies. And, it, you know, so this is really done... In an Arabic in an Arab context, and yeah. and, me, and and I don't expect it to be as 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 well read in, in English. You know, I'm obviously I'm I'm glad it's there and it still works at some level in the translation. But I'm just saying, I mean, there is there is that sort of issue which would be a, a perfectly understandable objection to mm-hmm. to specific Arabic books. But I think that the main problem is that they're not really being regarded as books in the way that Arabs are not really being regarded as human beings. You yeah. know, they're being regarded yeah. as, as subjects, as, 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 as objects of study. You know, not, not, not even subjects, not, not in the French existentialist sense, but objects, mm-hmm. objects of interest. Mm-hmm. And so these books become, their products, their literary products become objects of interest. And I think that takes away from, yeah. from all kinds of things, right? Well, then that's the, that's the sort of <clears throat> radical in, in, like, intervention then, that, that the act of writing, creative writing, the act of inventive fiction, of imaginative poetry, is a, is a kind of world-making, right? So that the author, the creative writer, is, is inventing a universe, right, of character, of plot, of theme, right, which is um, so radically different than than being the subject of somebody's gaze, or rather the object of somebody's gaze, right? That's that's a, a an active um, art making uh, that perhaps you know. Or it could be playing with that gaze. I mean, yeah. the, the other thing, the other remark I wanted to make about about Hashem's um, about what Hashem was saying is that is that the Arab. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'd like Hashem to comment actually on what he means by the market when he talks about the market mm-hmm. in, in the Arab context, but the Arab. The, Milieu is, is so tiny yeah. uh, in, in terms of in terms of literature uh, that that it's often conditioned by Western interventions as well. So the, the, the fact that the fact that the anthology was published in English and not in Arabic is right. will, will will be a demonstration of that. So so it's not. I mean, I think I think it really matters mm-hmm. how the West gazes upon. Uh, Arabic literature, and that's it. It also matters within the Arab world, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to keep these things clear, and 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 to make these distinctions between what is being read as as supplementary academic or news material, and what is being read as, as literature or or fiction or yeah. for pleasure, right? Yeah. And I think it. And the, I think the point needs to be made that you know that we are pretty much in the same. In the same human sphere, you know, mm-hmm. 
as whether whether we're Arabs or or Americans or whatever, you know, we can we, we really can talk to each other. I mean, it's not it's not that hard, and it's and we're not that different, and you know, yeah. etc. Yeah. etc. I think I think these points, and I think something like something like this issue of the comment really makes that point. Yeah. In. But and I would yeah. also say too, like, uh, the late Cliff Becker, who was the um, head of uh, literature for the National Endowment for the Arts was a huge champion of translation, especially for contemporary fiction and poetry. Uh, he passed a number of years ago, and, and with our, our new president, the NEA is in crisis. And the whole question of funding for translation is, is, is fraught, right? So I really take your point about like, how fiction, in particular, or poetry, becomes a way of, of communicating across right. cultural division. But also the act of writing it, right, is is a kind of energetic um, uh, world making, right, that then becomes available to to a reader. Um, and but then the question of translation, which is my next question for this for this group for this group, like, can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like to collaborate uh, as editors, but then collaborate with your authors and your translators, because that sounds like a whole complicated matrix of things happening. So can you just shed a little bit of light on what that process was like? It was complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Um, I just want to mention um, one thing, uh, speaking to the diversity of the issue and trying to present these authors as simply authors and not bounded by any particular or even historical, <laughs> historical tradition yeah. or even by any particular place. So when when we were talking about how to organize the issue, we made the decision not to put the author's countries of origin in the table of contents or even next to the author's names because we didn't want e even that to be a filter. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to present these were, these were writers and you approach the story on its own terms and you read it and you make up your own mind. Um, so if you read the bios, you can find out yeah. something about where people are from. Um, and it's... It's, the issue is not organized by region, it's organized by theme. Um, and of course, that was uh, these sort of loose groups of, um, loosely, <laughs> loosely themed. Um, but so that, that sort of speaks to this idea of saying, we're just gonna give you stories and you read them and they fall between a bunch of other stories. <laughs> um, you can see what you like and what you don't like. Um, and then the, uh, so yeah, the, the translating and, and the editing, um, each you know each piece was was different. Um, you know, Hisham can talk to about um, you know soliciting the work and you know and, and uh, talking to people. We were we were looking for geographic diversity, so we would have a wide representation. But geography was just one factor. We were looking for obviously men and women and different ages, different styles of writing. And so when um, I would get the pieces and I was reading them, um, reading them in English and then working very closely, mostly with the translators, sometimes with the, the authors and the translators, um, to, um, to do this process of editing, which is a strong tradition um, in the States and is not such a strong tradition in the Arabic mm -hmm. publishing world. Um, so I think that for some... Kind of slightly obsessive-compulsive in the States, though, wouldn't you agree? Oh. No way. <laughs> what? I think it's... Um, I mean, in Britain, they don't... Speaking for myself... It doesn't work like that in Britain. Um, but I think... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a strong believer in the process of editing. Um, of and I think that, you know, every, 
every writer, when, when I write things, I always, I always want an editor. Um, and not every piece in, in this issue um, was edited beyond copy editing. Um, but, but some pieces were, and, and I don't say that as a criticism, that because a, a piece goes through an editorial process, it doesn't mean that it is, is worse. Um, coming in, or that there's some no, fault with the with the author. Um, sometimes pieces are just very complicated, or an author has been working it, on it for a long time and can't see what someone who's reading it for the first time uh, is going to see. Um, but I was sometimes in the position of of stepping in and making editorial suggestions to um, to authors who had not encountered this before, and um, that had to be done delicately. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And to sort of make make this point that this was not a criticism, and that I was you know, tr trying very hard. And I, I'm not putting it in my own words. I'm not putting my own stamp on it. But from um, you know from the reader's point of view, this is what I'm seeing, and I I think that is what that's the primary function of an editor is to, is to simply communicate to the author this is how I read this. I'm reading it this way. I may not be representative of every reader, mm -hmm. um, but I am one reader who's read a lot of things, and this is what I'm, um, you know, this is what I'm seeing, and you can tell me, is that what you want? Is that what you intended? Um, mm -hmm. So that's from, you know, from the editorial point of view, but working with the translators was crucial. I mean, we just would talk, um, would talk certainly about phrases, um, Tenses and chronology was something that mm. um, was particularly interesting in this uh, act of translation, and this might be, uh, I'd be interested in. Tenses are always a problem from, from Arabic to English. It, yeah, right? it, was, it was really very tricky um, to establish when things happened and what was an, we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but you know what was an ongoing action and what was a one-time action, mm. um, and um, making that making that transition and might trying to identify that for then the translator to say, well, in the Arabic, this is what it says, or it's not clear, or we're you know we're supposed to have this general mm -hmm. yeah. impression. So that was one that was a major challenge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for, for me, well. Um, it was a, quite a complicated process because I would usually, most of the pieces I would select, I would, uh, because of, well, as you said, uh, as Jen said, in the Arab world, there's no tradition of uh, editing. Mm -hmm. And before I started publishing widely in translation into English, I was more of the opinion that Yusuf has produced that, you know, the, there's no need for an editor. Uh, etc. etc. No, but, but now but, I think so, yeah, 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 yeah. That's not that's okay, not what I said. But okay, for I'm that opinion Americans that Yusuf didn't say, it. so I was you know, close to the opinion which Yusuf didn't, you know, uh, <laughs> represent. That the editor is not um, needed. Uh, but then after um, many encounters with a lot of editors, especially from U.S. literary magazines. I'm published really widely in the U.S. literary magazines in translation. I came to the conclusion that editors are actually important in the sense, provided that uh, they do not intervene with uh, what you have to say, which is what happens in the world of publishing the commercial novel where editors sometimes mm -hmm. ask to change entire chapters, change the narrative, change the ending, mm -hmm. la, 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 la. All these things are, you know, for me, are uh, these are the bad sides of editing, which 
are part of the commercial publishing area, but literary magazines do not function in that uh, way. Mm -hmm. And this is why I found that they have a lot of valuable uh, comments about structuring the sentence sometimes, uh, because also their translations, the issue of tenses are always uh, misguiding mm. the translator or whatever, because in the Arabic we tend to use tenses freely, uh, unlike English, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so I uh, some, uh, intervened in some of the stories in Arabic, and then Jennifer would read the English translation. She would put editorial comments on how she sees the story, and uh, we discussed that. And when we agree, we would relay that remark to the author to introduce, uh, remove a sentence, maybe introduce mm. something in the piece. And then the entire thing would go to a translation editor who would read both texts and also comment on the quality uh, of translation before this magazine mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. came into existence. So. Uh, and I think also this collaboration and discussion that went on, I think it was uh, very interesting. And it also showed a lot of resistance from some of the writers who were not you know, <laughs> accepting that somebody would comment on the writing, which is quite funny because for me as a writer, I would like to listen to people commenting on my writing, especially if they are involved in literary production, like editors or other writers. But there was this also, not all, but some, a few, were quite resistant, but at the end, you know, mm -hmm. with, with a lot of discussion, uh, yeah, I think we found like a common ground to accommodate this novelty. It's good, yeah. common ground. Yeah. <laughs> My, I have a, a follow-up question about this as well. When you, the, the magazine itself is beautiful. If you get a chance to put it in your hands um, when you walk out of here, please do. How did you make a decision about whether to publish the original next to the translation or just the translation? Like, What, what was your decision-making process about how it would look in the book? You mean if we were going to do a bilingual version or yes. not? Yes. That was just cost prohibitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, for the most part, it would have been twice as long. And um, um, I mean, that, that, was the, that was the main thing. Was the um, I, yeah. It would be phenomenal to be able to do a, um, a bilingual edition and to be able to um, serve both audiences. Um, I think, I mean, our primary audience was an English-speaking audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, that, um, and if we were... Catching that, catching that audience, um, the, that was the, the primary thing. But um, yeah, for you know, funding allowed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think bilingual would be great. Right. Yeah. So I think the economics of the situation are something to bear in mind, especially for literary magazines and small presses in the U.S. Again, there's not a ton of funding available for them. Right. Um, so I have one more question, and then I'm going to turn it over to the, the uh, crowd uh, for further Q&A. Um, and that has to do with the scene, right, the Arabic fiction writing scene. And I just want to say, for those people in the room um, who are aspiring writers, um, the role of the literary magazine in the West is really crucial to your career. And that is to say, if you see yourself as an aspiring poet, or someone who's writing short fiction, the typical flow in the United States is that you would write your poems, 
get your friends to read your poems, make edits to your poems, and then submit them to literary magazines. And you would submit to a number of literary magazines because now it's okay to simultaneously submit. And I'm old enough to remember when it was not okay to simultaneously submit because the administrative kerfuffle of that mm -hmm. is just taxing. But now there's technology um, called Submittable. So you can submit your work to individual literary magazines and then the editors will get back to you to let you know if you're published, if you're lucky enough to be published or if your work has been rejected. And then you take those rejections and then you learn from those rejections and maybe you circulate more documents or more poems, more short stories out there. Maybe you get another couple of publications and the next thing you know, maybe an, an agent or an editor is interested in you and then you perhaps secure a book contract or you win a prize for that manuscript of poems and then you're off on your merry way as a air quotes, legitimate poet and writer with many books behind you. But that is the role of the literary magazine in the US. It really is a sort of vetting and, and clearing house, um, a sort of kind of a gatekeeping function for young and aspiring uh, writers. And, and when I say young, that's not even, I don't mean that chronologically. I just mean young in your career, right? Who knows how old you are when you start to write a poem or a short story. But that's the function of the lit mag in the West. What is the function of a literary magazine here? Are there literary magazines that you um, recognize and, and um, celebrate? Uh, what's the role of the editor? This is, this is the tag on question here. Um, and is the flow of the work process the same? Is the flow toward a career as a writer the same here? What can you tell okay, us? I'm getting suicidal just thinking about the answers to those questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no and no. <laughs> no, we don't really have. Do, do you have literary magazines in Jordan? We don't really have no, literary no. magazines. No. no, I was just talking to Jan about it. Uh, yeah. Or, oh no, well, well, I forgot who yesterday. So. We have two. To you. To you. It was this morning. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Travel to Jam. So we have two literary reviews. One that comes out of Jordan University, and stays in the room where all the magazines are stacked next to the editor in chief's office, and one that is produced by the Ministry of Culture, and okay. it stays in the warehouse uh, of that Ministry of Culture. We had a, a very good tradition, I think, in the 50s, 60s. Mm -hmm. Where we had Al-Adab or yes, Adib or yes, there used to be, there used to be uh, yeah, even in yeah. Egypt uh, yes. a lot of literary magazines and they were quite uh, playing the same role as you mentioned now about how a writer would be introduced first through these mm -hmm. literary uh, magazines but now no I no would say, I would no, say the main no, reason yeah. for that is there's no funding yeah. it used to be it used to be pretty much uh, state supported mm -hmm. or or indirectly state supported. And that's that's over now for for a variety of reasons, but uh, and I'm and I'm glad it's over. But but nothing has taken over from from okay. the state in terms of in terms of funding, right? Yeah. Because this is not obviously this isn't a, a profit making uh, endeavor. Right. So um, so I mean there there are some initiatives. There are occasional sort of journals that that, that usually have very specific ideas about writing. Uh, but usually don't last because there's not there's not enough money and they don't sell enough. Yeah. Um, uh, what else was you I have say? a site? I have a, well, well, there are several there are several things on, on, on online. Yes. Yes. That, that that sort of perform that function, but yes, the main the main point I wanted to make is is things are a lot less formal or formalized in in the Arab world. So so it does tend to involve friends and people you know personally mm -hmm. and uh, and. Uh, 
favors and things yeah, like this that? Yeah, this is what I wanted to say, actually. Yeah. That <clears throat> if you get published, it, it relies more on if you know the person behind that publication, lit mm -hmm. that literary supplement in the newspaper. Doesn't necessarily reflect quality or Not at all, not at all. So there's this, this loss. Yeah. And when, when, once we have the social media out there, now it's like... Yeah, the and there are social media. I mean, the this mess. is an example of disastrous the big mess. In the yeah. that there yeah. are social yeah. media stars yeah. who are only known on social media, yeah. and whose writing isn't so isn't so yeah. great, you know, or or representative even. Yeah, but they're known because they're very popular. Yeah. on Facebook. And, and, and I think we have this trend of the Facebook stars, writers who are, in my opinion, are you know, extremely rubbish writing, but mm -hmm. they are bestsellers. They are sort of compiling books. And they are turning into bestsellers as well because mm -hmm. of the whatever. Well, not to get me wrong, I'm all for free writing. Whatever, it's bad writing, good writing, I don't mind. But I think, well, there's also another issue here of the loss of literary criticism and yeah. Yeah, for all of these. Yes, and the other thing, sorry, and the other mm -hmm. thing is, is these things also come out of educational institutions, mm -hmm. which we don't really have in the Arab world. Mm. I mean, we have these old sort of, government-supported universities that are very conservative, very, and increasingly kind of sectarianized and fundamentalized, if mm -hmm. there is such a word. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, And nothing really, can, I mean, very few things. Or You opened a big subject. Are. And there is also the issue of authority sponsoring certain yeah. writers, yeah. pushing them to the front. Uh, for example, in Jordan, is, is yeah. This, is this like, leak enough yeah. for you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, and good night, everyone. Um, so I, I want to, uh, before I turn this over to Q&A, I want to remember something y'all said earlier, which is um, that this is one of the first times you've been able to sort of sit together and have a conversation. And so I want to open it up to you first. Do you have questions for each other? <laughs> well, um, I, had, I had one question for, for Hashem uh, uh, about the market when he says that he didn't choose based on the market. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious to know what he means by the market mm. in the Arab context. Which, mm. which market? Because the market is really, as far as I can see, is, is really completely outside of the... I mean, books that sell, sell because they're unlike books in the Arab world. Does mm. that make sense? Books that sell, sell because they're more like uh, television serials mm -hmm. or, or cool. Facebook status updates. Yeah. Or, That's the market. That's okay. Yeah, that's the market. I mean, yeah. I like mean mainstream that mainstream mass market. Yeah, main, the mainstream mass market is is really. I, I I think it's it's kind of similar in the West, you know, yeah. but, but not quite, not quite so extreme. But really, anything that sells sells because it's not like it's unlike literature. Yeah. You know, it's unlike fiction or <laughs> unlike poetry, or it's extremely old-fashioned, or or yeah. it's uh, it's relevant politically, or you know, any any reason other than the fact that it has literary merits or is, or is an engaging read, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, for me, I think there's a huge trend in commoditizing uh, literature, uh, especially on bestsellers. And I have also this uh, thesis about why the novel, why it is now the prevalent, are short stories, and I will not, so far, I will not, and I would not want to write a novel. But the publishers obviously want the novel. The, Awards, the big awards, won the novel. Why the novel? This is this is one of my you know arguments is that it's the literary genre that is more able to be transformed into a commodity because it's like a series. So it's 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 an easier read. 
not an easy write, but an easy read on the, on the reader. The characters are usually uh, well-defined. Events are you know, slowly developing over time towards an end, and the different characters are... I would, I you would know, take issue with that. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I said most, not all, most, most. But uh, in the short story form and in poetry, the, there's a, 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 an effort that the reader should uh, make in order to relate to the text build on the text, uh, explore the text, mm -hmm. dig into the text, etc. So th that makes it a tougher uh, read uh, when compared to most uh, of the novels, not all uh, of the novels. And that's why I think the publishing industry, either in the West or in the Arab region, which we don't have an industry, but the publishers, uh, you, know, uh, you know, found that the novel is the best way to, you know, mm -hmm. co commercialize mm -hmm. or commodify uh, literature. Interesting, yeah. interesting. We have some time uh, now for questions from the audience, and there are quite a few hands. And I don't know if there's a microphone that we're going to pass around, or maybe we're all just going to speak loudly. Perhaps. No, maybe there's a microphone there here. It yeah. disappeared. Our microphone disappeared. <laughs> Hi. Hold on just one sec. Hi. Oh, there's a microphone in the room. Wait for it. Thanks, right over here. <laughs> Is it on? Yeah. <laughs> I think you speak right into it. Hello? That's yeah. perfect. <laughs> um, just uh, thank you for the discussion. It's really nice to be here. Um, regarding what you said about uh, editing, I was wondering if you were worried about the impact you would have on the writing coming from the outside of the Arab world and a non-Arabic speaker, whether you'd affect the authenticity of the, the writing and the voice. And mm -hmm. Good question. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that... Um, that I'd, I didn't ha so much have that concern because my main role was one of, as I, as I say, being a reader and saying to the and saying to the author, "This is this is how I'm this is how I'm reading this," or perhaps asking questions, saying, "This is something that is confusing to me," or "This is something that um, that I, sometimes I would say this is something that I'm not sure that um, that an American audience would understand," which is fine. It's fine to keep things in that. Not everybody understands, but maybe just to point that out. And so then at least the author is aware that this may not be something that would be easily understood outside of, um, outside of an Arabic context or even outside of a, particularly, a particular national or cultural context. Um, so I, I don't see my or other editor's role as one to sort of make things palatable or understandable for everyone or, or even for me. Um, but to point again, to, just to point out how um, how I read it, um, and then it's sort of if, if something is absolutely confusing and the you know the, the tenses the verb tenses weren't lining up, I'd say, well, you know, he can't land on the ground before he jumps out the window. He has to jump out the window first and then land on the ground, <laughs> and so that you know that, that pointing out that kind of thing. Um, but I think that's an interesting question for uh, this kind of cross cultural. Uh, interaction. Yeah, but also I think the authenticity of the voice is the task of the translator, 
who should be more involved biculturally, as we say, in... Yeah, know, I was going to say, I mean, you, yeah. you, 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 affect, you take that risk by simply translating it. So it's not really an issue of editing yeah. as much as hmm. taking it into a different yeah. language yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we tried, I think yeah. this issue represents the most, you know, the utmost effort to, to maintain authenticity through having an Arabic editor, an English editor, a translation editor. So all of this went into the process and I think this is quite representative uh, of the case. There's a question back here. I'm not sure I need a mic, but I just want to return to that sort of frisson of disagreement over the issue of editing, uh, because I think that's important and I'd like to hear more about it. Um, and I'm interested that I twice in your conversation and now once in the answer, the example that was held up uh, as the example par excellence that required editing was the example of the use of tenses. Mm -hmm. um, and my, part of my question would be, what would happen if you were able to retain the fluidity of the tenses as they are in Arabic. Mm. Because to my mind, one of the things that might have done, it might not, but one of the things that might have done is it might have allowed the text to actually change the way the reader reads or thinks, mm -hmm. which surely is what um, you'd want literature to do, rather than reading something that you already know, i.e. that you have to jump before you land. What happens if you think about a universe in which you might land before you jump? Um, and so what is, what is the danger, what is the fear of not editing those tenses um, is a question I'd like to ask all three of you. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> um, I, I think it, um, this is, again, kind of a question of translation, um, that if, if the intent is to present an alternate reality in which someone lands on the ground before he jumps out the window, um, then, then we would have to keep it because that would be representative of something that is happening in the original language that the author is intending to, um, to show. Um, I, I just think that the, I don't know how successfully you can capture the fluidity of <laughs> Um, of the tenses that w when I read what, what's, what's coming, you know, what, what's coming through, I actually can't say whether what's being written in English is mm -hmm. really what's happening in the in the Arabic. But maybe as a translator, you yeah, can, sorry, sorry. You can I'm, speak I'm just, to that. I'm, I'm laughing because because I think, I mean, the, the Arabic the, the Arab sense of time is entirely different. So, <laughs> so it doesn't really tenses are an issue because because they're much more flexible in Arabic, and they're understood by implication as opposed to being different as such, right? So, and, and again, this is a translation, not an editing issue. Uh, about the, uh, the, the disagreement, the, the editing disagreement, I, I don't think it's a real disagreement, it's just that I've noticed, in, in, as a writer, as, a, as an English language writer, I've noticed that American publications tend to make a bigger deal of editing than they might. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, and more, definitely more so than British publications or or whatever. You know, so okay. So from my side, I think well, uh, there's no disturbance when it, when an Arabic reader reads an Arabic text where tenses are used freely. There's no disturbance of you know, uh, let's say time conception or time or chronology yeah, or exactly. time comprehension. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't face that difficulty. He, he understands uh, so for example, how the things are evolving. 
the continuous tense in Arabic, the, the first continuous, is, is very often indistinguishable from the present tense. Right? But you, you yeah, can, but that doesn't make any problems for the reader. Yeah, exactly, because mm -hmm. you can yeah. see you can you But can, for an English reader, he would feel, you know, what's But if you translated it literally, if you translated yeah. the tenses literally, then yeah. it wouldn't they really would work. be lost, everything will be lost, the structure will be lost. And also I, I think I have to also stress the issue that translation is not uh, just copying the you know the original text. I think it's it's a creative process yes. on its own right. Yes. <laughs> and uh, again, I want to stress not bilinguality but bicultural biculturality. Okay, so the yeah. translator should be bicultural in the sense that he understands the puns, he understands the mm -hmm. hidden meanings of uh, words and so on. And That's how to possible, say, of course. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And as, as such, yeah, uh, it can't be like a cop. A copy in a way or another. This is such a helpful conversation to sort of distinguish the work of the translator, the translator's task, and the editor's task. Um, and I'm going to add to this conversation only by reading a little quote from 1954. This is from the translator John Charty, his translator's note for Dante's Inferno. So I, like, I just wanted to share this with you. Um, when the violin repeats what the piano has just played, it cannot make the same sounds, and it can only approximate the same chords. It can, however, make recognizably the same music, the same air, but it can do so only when it is as faithful to the self-logic of the violin as it is to the self-logic of the piano. And determining the self-logic of Arabic and the self-logic of English seems to be such an interesting and complicated position for both the translator and the editor when these publications are being brought forth to a particular readership. So that's, that's John Charity from Dante's Inferno. There are some more questions in the back there. Actually, right here, and then we'll go straight back. Yeah, you first. Um, well, we're still on editing. Um, but um, I think you, you had a huge project on your hands with all the working with all these authors and all these translators and all this editing. Uh, have you thought about publishing something about your experience that people could learn from, like lessons learned? Bingo. No. <laughs> I believe there might be. But thank fingers. you for that idea. Would you like to edit it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you for the idea. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, she did uh, a couple of short interviews, but not at, not after. Well, I guess after the the, the process as, as well. But um, but yes, a, a behind the scenes uh, <laughs> version. Um, this is Omer. Uh, thank you very much. This is a very good uh, conversation going on. Uh, I need to ask uh, just a simple uh, small thing. Uh, writing is a creative job. I have been also writing in some other language, and I know when a writer is writing, it's in a, a different state of mind. He's thinking something and he's putting on the, you know, paper. But once you are translating, for example, from Arabic to English, both of the persons can be from a different set of ideology, mm. this different part of world. And uh, once you are translating from Arabic to English, maybe the Arabic writer, he was in a different state of mind at that time. And uh, the translator is in a different state of mind. Okay. So it could be any, uh, it could be altogether the translation, what he wanted to say in Arabic could be different. How do you respond to that? Please. 
Okay, so I'll answer, and I think Yusuf is interested in answering that as well. Um, something will definitely be lost in translation. Mm -hmm. that's, that's something we have to accept. Mm -hmm. uh, but also something is also gained in translation, uh, which is access to another audience. Sometimes, um, well, I'm going to show you my, my book, which is one of the examples. This is a book that has been translated of mine. And yeah, it's open, thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> yeah, and uh, again, it's bilingual, so you can directly, if one is uh, experienced with both languages, you can directly relate the experience of how the text is written and what is the translation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we opted to changing uh, some words, uh, etc. But this is not usually happening. So I have a close collaboration with my translator. So uh, we talk about the piece, we talk about flow, because it's, this, this, you know, it's, a, it's a, you know, a flash fiction or very short fiction which meets poetry. It's, it's on the borderline of these two genres. So we try to, to reproduce flow. And it's one peculiarity because I know English. So I can also read the English and comment on the English translation, but I can't translate myself. I tried that, and it's a disaster, of course. So uh, yeah, for then, this collaboration is not usual. It's it's not the any uh, what's prevalent in the world of translation. But this is a way, uh, if you, the two people uh, access this, the the translation, the language uh, that you are translating to, can assess and discuss. But usually things are lost in translation, and we have to accept mm -hmm. uh, that loss. Mm -hmm. There you go. Thank you. Uh, we have time for some more questions. I think there's some over here. Yeah. Hi. This is a question you perhaps addressed a little bit right now, but like the way I see it, like when you translate from Arabic to English, there's a lot of words in Arabic which describe the same phenomena, but in a slightly different aspect. Like the ca category of words, a variety of words in Arabic, as I've studied Arabic, is much wider. And like, as you said, like lost in translation, when you translate to English, do you feel that that's a problem that you face on a daily basis? And like, do you feel like, what is your solution to that? Because so that like, words do not get repeated over and over again, describing the same thing, perhaps. Yusuf, you're the translator. Okay, yes. <laughs> well, well the, the, the only point I wanted to make in, 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 in this context is Arabic is not as, is not as, as clear-cut in a way as English because obviously we, we write in a standardized form of, in a modernized standardized form of the classical language mostly, and, but the spoken dialects are extremely different and sometimes often mutually unintelligible. So, and, and to bring the, the life of, of, of the spoken language to a written text is part of the challenge of what you do when you, when you write fiction or poetry in Arabic. Right? So I wouldn't worry that much about uh, things being lost in translation because I mean sometimes I think they're lost in between Arabic dialects and as well you know it's always it's it's I, I think I think the question is I mean I, I I really love that that quote from from charity yeah yeah uh, I think the, the idea is for the same music to come through in a from from a different instrument you know and it's obviously a different instrument and I think 
it's also respecting its difference, you know, and um, uh, otherwise, otherwise there's no point. You know? Otherwise, uh, I mean, if you if you do literal, inaccurate sort of literal approximations of things, then nothing comes through at all. Right? So you have to find some sort of balance um, to create an equivalent. I don't know if that's... I, yeah. I think the only thing I would add is to sort of link the two comments <clears throat> by saying, um, so as the director of the writing program, I work really carefully and closely with first-year students. So we have about 320 first-year students this year. I think they speak like 106 different languages, right? So this group is so multilingual. It's interesting to think about multilingualism in this conversation, and it's not just translating between languages. It's like being in multiple languages at the same time. So the research on creativity shows that there are like various forms of creativity, and one form is this thing that you said called flow, like the, the sort of creative act when you're sort of like in the process of making something happen, you sort of like lose sight and sense of your own self in this process of making. And the evidence shows us that that happens to people when they're thinking and writing in their preferred language. So I'm super interested in what, what flow is like for students and, and writers who are moving across multiple languages. Because I imagine what the brain is doing translating probably feels a whole lot different than that flow that you described, right? And, and what can we learn from that? Like, what, what do we know about the the experience of a writer working in a preferred language or multiple languages, and, and then how does the language itself or how do the sentences sort of take shape when you're moving across multiple languages like that, right? So anyway, I think there were a couple more questions over here. Hi, um, I, I wanna just ask you about something you had seemed like you're headed in the direction of before you opened up to questions. Um, when you were talking about markets and the difference between literature and commercial fiction mm. and how that sort of reigns over, I'd say, American publishing and is maybe pushing us to make these distinctions. You Yusuf talked about earlier about stereotypes. And I mean, I, I'm a writer and I have a short story collection that came out a few years ago and all of my stories had been vetted by literary magazines. And it doesn't seem like you have quite the same process yeah. in the Middle East where a publisher knows that you're going to have some sort of audience. So it's also, it's harder for the publisher to then decide what will sell. I mean, and it's a capitalist society, you know. I mean, they have to, unfortunately, make money off what they publish. So what, what would you advise? Like, where do you see um, stronger Arab literature developing and coming? Like, how, how can you make that leap without that, the power within your own countries of editors and magazines that are getting word out and creating enough of a buzz that American publishers are going to pay attention. Oh. That's an excellent question. Yeah. <laughs> that really is an excellent question. I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. You stumped no all of us. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. And I also agree that we're seeing a deterioration of quality as well in the new contemporary Arabic literary scene, we kind of try to evade that by formulating, um, actually this is how the common was evolved. It was my trial to connect to people who I think are artistically uh, good or very good or excellent and 
trying to connect with them, read their work, they read my work, trying to establish a conversation. And we can't say literary current, all literary currents are, I think, very beneficial. But in a way, trying to formulate a creative community uh, in that sense. And it is through the my invigent anthology of new Arabic writing that this dialogue or community can uh, declare itself, portray itself, discuss its, what it's doing, and so on and so forth. So this is what what we are doing at the moment. So uh, other than that, yeah, I agree with Yusuf. It's a catastrophe. <laughs> and uh, no, but I think, but I think that what she's saying is that to to formulate a kind of capitalist commercial literary world within the Arab world would result in commercial right. Arab, Arabic fiction that would then feed that, that sort of Western market mm -hmm. in, in the same way, and it wouldn't actually place the better Arabic writing uh, in, mm -hmm. in, in the limelight. Yeah. And, I, and I don't I see a way around hear, that. Right? I just don't. Yeah, but I also... I, I mean, as much as it's yeah. commercialized, that's what's going to happen, right? Right. I mean, the same... <clears throat> I mean, as you said, the same thing is sort of true in the States that there are always these small circles or small, you know, small magazines that are publishing things that are never going to be commercially viable. Ever. Um, and yeah, not because they're not good, um, but because they would, you know, they'll just attract a narrow audience because they're too experimental or they just, they, or they, you know, are, are just, um, for whatever reason, are of interest to to you know, to small smaller numbers of readers. So there's there's always going to be that. There's always going to be art that applies. They know that's of interest to smaller groups, and art that's of interest mm -hmm. to you know to much larger <laughs> groups of people. And I think the the smaller non-commercial publishing, like literary magazines, is where you have vibrant and diverse um, communities. And so that word community. <laughs> Is, yes. um, is is the word yeah. yes. um, that having you know reaching out, having some sort of platform or some sort of network that allows people to connect and read each other's work, even if it's only ten people. A lot of literary magazines or but early modernist possibly, magazines were had tiny audiences. So, I think possibly less insular communities. I think I think that in the Arab world, literary communities have tended to be extremely incestuous and, and very and very kind of people like each other. So I think that connecting through across languages is, is, is important too, and, and across mm -hmm, countries, mm -hmm. because that, I mean this is what I'm trying to do on, on, on my site. You know, I'm trying mm -hmm. to get as many people from different parts of the world as possible, but but doing similar things. You yeah. know, uh, and and that's the sort of dialogue that, that's interesting. Whereas if it's just a ten ten similarly aged writers in, in Cairo. Then there, you know, I mean, there there may be distinctions, and it may be interesting in itself, but but it, it doesn't yeah. go further, you know. But so on, on can I just thing, add? add sure. one, it's it's one important thing is, I think it's quite recent this influence of the market because when you think about so-called bestseller authors in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they were Jabra Ibrahim, Jabra Abdurrahman, Munif. Uh, Not in Egypt, I'm sorry. Yeah, in the east, in the, in in Egypt, you would have uh, Najib Mahfouz, maybe. Uh, no, Hassan Abdul Qudus. Hassan was the best seller, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a commercial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But this is something to discuss. Yeah. Where have we, you know, where has this been introduced, and the power of the market? I think the power of the market would definitely deteriorate the uh, quality of art. 
I think this is now quite prevalent in the in the world of plastic arts and painting, and yeah, and I think it's it's you know uh, literature is quite ca catching very fast on that. So I want to I want to jump on this and say we have time for one more question, but before we take that question, I I want to respond to this by saying if you look at this um, community of writers, air quotes. Through the lens of the market, it looks like you know there's nothing happening. Perhaps it's this catastrophe, right? But if you take that market lens off, there is vibrant work happening, right? People are actually like writing short fiction and and poems yeah. and, and whatever the work is. Um, but it's hard to see it if you're only looking at it from that particular lens or perspective. And I say that because hopefully everybody in here will have a chance to march over to the NYU Abu Dhabi Art Gallery and see the show called But We Cannot See Them, um, tracing the UAE art community 1988 through 2008. Yeah. So Maya, um, Allison, and her team has curated uh, an, an exhibit that takes this precise question about how artists build communities in ways that are rich and vibrant, but perhaps under the radar of an outsider's gaze. And it's right down the way there. Um, so again, we we have one, one time for one more question, and I'll, I'll one, let two, you four. make the decision Bye. there. Sorry. And we will stay and hang out, but some people have to run off and go see a show. We totally understand this. Uh, you mentioned, is it on? You mentioned before, uh, at some point, uh, or at least it was implied that you held a certain disdain for uh, uh, novels as opposed to other forms of writing. Could you just elaborate on why that is? Why? <laughs> Why do you hate novels? Why do I hate novels? Okay, cool. That's a cool. Oh, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't hate novels. I hate com commodities and commoditization and commercialization of art and literature. This is what I hate. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I think. Well, again, I, I don't undermine the creative value of novels, of good novels. Of there's a lot of excellent novels. I out there, I've been inspired by a lot of uh, excellent, great artistic novels. Uh, but I think what is being celebrated now in the novel is its ability to become a commodity, a literary commodity, not its uh, literary merit. And that's mm -hmm. where I think the problem uh, lies. And I was just going to you know, comment uh, after you finished that. Uh, uh, at the moment, I think poetry and the short form are the you know the literary resistance movement of the against the commercialization uh, of art and anyone writing poetry and short stories and trying to publish those would understand exactly what I mean. Uh, even established writers, uh, the, their publisher would ask them to submit two three novels yeah. uh, in 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 uh, uh, in exchange for. Uh, you know, publishing their short story collection, or and so on and so forth. So this would would uh, um, clarify the impact of the market again, of the publishing market again, on how uh, to. And, and I think this is censorship. This is this is how we define. This is censorship. The market is also censoring writers and directing them towards where to write. And with the with the current uh, literary big literary awards in the Arab world. I think uh, we can see clearly the migration of uh, writers and people who cannot write as well into the world of the novel, trying to be to become these big stars, winning these big prizes, and being these you know part of this. Uh, uh, let's say, whatever. Glad you got him started. Festivities, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's certainly not literature. I, I think the quality that comes out of all of this 
is, is really bad and you know it's insulting to literature in a way. Well then, um, <laughs> here we are at the end of our time. I think what we can take away from this is you should write and you should read and you should write and you should read and you should hang out and ask questions because we'll hang out for a little bit longer um, and you should join me in thanking this lovely family. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.